a small side trip from our uh, 19 weeks in the book of Philippians. I figured we're about to finish, why not stop for a while? So it's a perfect math there. We're about two weeks away, and I'm going to take a couple-week break. And, and I really thought about it long and hard, because I thought, well, if we just push through, we'll be all done. But the, these next two Sundays are, are really powerful, and they, they sort of demand a little bit of our attention focusing on the life of Christ in a really specific way. And, and so I want to spend this time doing that today and next Sunday as we really look at the events and the life of Christ and how they radically change our lives. Because these eight days, this week in history is the single greatest week in all of history. It changes everything that we know and turns everything upside down. And I glanced back over the past three weeks that we've kind of, or three years we've kind of been doing this, and I looked at Palm Sunday, and, and pretty much every one of those Sundays I've preached the same thing, or at least the same passage. And I thought about doing something really different, but that lasted about two seconds, because I was like, I love this stuff. Like, no matter how many times I hear it, no matter how many times I read it, the movement of God here stirs my soul. The fact that the God of the universe would step into humanity, would walk this earth, and then God would complete his redemptive plan for me through Christ's death on a cross, and then ultimately conquer that through victory is unbelievable. But the events that unfold as Jesus comes into Jerusalem this week are amazing. And it's so easy in our habitual kind of Christian lives to just kind of get wrapped up in what we know. And always look for, teach me something new, say something new to me, God do something new. And sometimes when we just stop and we look at the familiar and we realize how powerful and life changing it is, it will really mess us up. So as I was wrestling with this text this morning, I thought that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at what we know so well and we're going to look at it through the lens of one word and that word is the word expectation. Because if anything was happening in those days, it was expectation. I mean, the air was rich with it. The people were expecting something powerful as they gathered in Jerusalem. And expectations can be powerful. You and I have them. As we gather here this morning, we have expectations. There are certain things that we expect. Some are big and some are small. This morning on my way down here, I've stopped at Starbucks, as I always do. And I I had a few minutes, and I was sitting there just kind of looking through some stuff. And a guy sat down next to me, and he pulled out a briefcase. Older gentleman pulled out a briefcase and he set it on his lap. And, and I was a little bit intrigued because his Sunday morning is not usually the briefcase kind of work. And he wasn't dressed like anyone that should have a briefcase. And he, he kind of popped it open. And I was, all I could wonder about was what was, in, what was inside this thing uh, this guy's getting ready to work on. Maybe he, he's an attorney or maybe he does something. He's got his files in there and he's going to do whatever. And he opens it up and he pulls out a box. Another box inside the box. So he pulls out a box and he opens that box and he pulls out a Rubik's Cube. I lie to you not, an old 80s style Rubik's Cube. And now I'm super intrigued because either he's really cool or something's going on. And so, so he puts the box away and he puts a briefcase in the box and he pulls it. And this Rubik's Cube looks like it has been, I mean, dr- just drove over a thousand times. Like it is just brutal. I took a phone, you follow me, picture on my phone, you follow me on Twitter, you probably saw it this morning. But I posted it. So this guy's doing this Rubik's Cube. And I've got about a zillion questions that are going through my mind. He's getting ready to get them all, right? And so I'm sitting there and I'm kind of watching. I can tell he's kind of watching me. And, uh, and I said, I said, is that a Rubik's Cube? And he said, well, of course, I already knew the answer to that one. I was like, I was just kind of setting up the groundwork there. And I was like, he goes, yes. And I said, man, it looks like that thing's kind of rugged. He was like, yep. And he's not a lot of words, right? Yep. And I said, do you do it often? He goes, on Sundays. I said, Every Sunday? He goes, every Sunday. And I said, so you do this Rubik's Cube every Sunday? And he looked at me and goes, of course. I mean, like, ridiculous. I'll, I'll, at that moment in time, what I wanted to say, I wanted to challenge him to a game of Connect Four or something else. 
Like, I wanted to be like, have you ever, you know, but I was, and, and it was almost like, how could I have expected anything else? I mean, he walks in a briefcase and a box inside a briefcase and pulls out a Rubik's Cube, and it's Sunday. It's time to turn the puzzle, baby. And so I was blown away, and I, I was, you know, nothing else really happened except the fact that I was going, I expected something so much different, and I was actually blown away. My expectations were small. I thought he was going to have some kind of little files in there to do some work or whatever, and instead, this is the coolest guy I've ever met, and he's done a Rubik's Cube probably for 25 years every Sunday because it's Sunday. You do the Rubik's Cube. Expectations are really interesting things, and if anything was happening in this kind of time period about 2,000 years ago, it was expectation. I mean, The air in Jerusalem was ripe for it. Let me tell you what's happening in history before we dive into our text in Matthew 21. And You know, the streets of Jerusalem were at a fevered pitch. I mean, they were were just overflowing with people. People had packed into town for the, uh, for the pilgrimage holiday, the Passover. Now, there were three pilgrimage holidays in, in Israel's kind of worship life, but Passover was the big one. It was the one where they came to gather to celebrate God's faithfulness. They came to gather to celebrate God's rede- kind of redeeming them and pulling them out of Egypt. And they were celebrating God's provision. And also on this holiday, once a year, when they would come up for the Passover, they would sacrifice. They would make a sacrifice for their sin and for the sins of their whole family. And so... You tried to make all the pilgrimages, but if you could only make one, you made the Passover. And it was an exciting time. I mean, there was just so many people. Israel, I mean, uh, uh, Jerusalem was built up on a hill, up on a mountain. And it wasn't built to hold a lot of people. It had these big walls, and a lot of people lived in the kind of outlying valleys, and they just went up to Jerusalem to do work. So when you packed all these people, and they're coming from all the outlying areas and all the surrounding towns and countrysides, and they all shoved themselves basically into the walls of the city, the, the, just the crowd and the, the feeling was electric. Not what was going on. And not to mention, there was this talk, this expectation of the Messiah, of the one that was going to come and reestablish him as a political kind of nation. They were under Roman rule. They ultimately, although they could semi-govern themselves, had to obey the laws of Caesar himself. And they longed for the day when, as a nation, the promised Messiah would come from the line of David, and he would restore the great nation of Israel to what it once was. And there were these rumors going around that this guy out in the countryside by the name of Jesus was doing things that only a prophet or only God himself could do. That he was feeding thousands, that he was casting out demons, that he was um, healing the blind, and that he was raising the dead. And these things were circulating. And then the rumors started going around that this Jesus was coming. That this Jesus was coming. And so people were living in this expectation, this anticipation, not only of the Passover, but of this possible coming of this new Messiah, perhaps the one, the one they've been waiting for. So expectation was rich and it was thick. So we're going to take a look at that, the book of Matthew chapter 21. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open it up. And I want you to fight the urge to live with the familiar. Fight the urge to say, hey, Trevor, I've heard this story all my life. Fight the urge to live in that place that says, I know what happens next. And let's see if God will move in an unexpected way. Let's pray as we find, uh, find your way to Matthew chapter 21 this morning. God, I thank you that um, we get to do this. I just, I'm blown away that this is what we get to do on a Sunday morning. That we get to gather up here in this place, sing to a God that gives us life. To open your word, which is, is living and active and, and penetrates us. And have an encounter with you together. That this sort of corporate movement of worship always drives us, Father, to your heart. And that, God, I pray that as we sit here this morning, that these familiar words that kind of echo true on this Palm Sunday, that lead us to the cross and then ultimately to the resurrection, Father, would be more than just words. But, Father, that you would remind us of your exact call for our life. And that, God, we might change our expectations and expect 
kind of the holy unexpected from a God who moves in powerful ways. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to speak to you in a new way this morning. Maybe something just that simple. God, speak to me in a new way this morning. Pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name. Just pray that God would move in them. As I've mentioned every single week, just be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we don't invite you here. We know your presence is already here. We turn this place over to you, God. It is yours. Father, meet us in an unexpected way this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 21. Listen to these words as if you're hearing them for the first time. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, placed cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread out branches, uh, spread out their cloaks on the road, and uh, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went ahead of him shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You know, it's, a, it's an incredibly famous passage because it's one we visit once a year. Um, a lot of times this sort of triumphal entry doesn't get a whole lot of play in our church preaching circles outside of this one Sunday a year. But it's something that we become very, very familiar with. And it marks the single greatest kind of movement in history which are the eight days that unfold, lead us to the cross, and then ultimately to the resurrection. And as I mentioned, the expectation in the air was rich. And as Jesus and his disciples are making the journey to the Passover, they're going to participate in this sort of uh, festival, in this feast, in this meal. And as they were going and as they were preparing, they come up to the Mount of Olives, a place that Jesus was very familiar with and would even be more familiar with before the week was out. And he stops and he tells the disciples to go into the nearest city. And they'll, here there they will find a donkey and a baby donkey. And go get them and bring them to me. And if anybody gives you any trouble, just tell them that the Lord needs them and they're going to let, let them go. So sure enough, they do just as I say. And they find this donkey and this foal and they bring them to Jesus. And they lay their cloaks on top of them. And Jesus sits there and they ride into town. It says that a massive crowd, people in front and behind, as they're all heading up this winding road to Jerusalem, begin to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down their cloaks, and they're pulling branches off the trees, and they're laying them on the ground. And the whole city, it says at the very end, is stirred as Jesus rises into town. As he comes in through those gates, that sort of electric energy and atmosphere begins to penetrate even through the gates and the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and people start talking about what's going on. All this noise is being made. People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everyone began to ask, who is this? And people said, this is Jesus from Nazareth. Luke actually ends his account in a really powerful way. Same story, same account, except he ends it with this. He says that as Jesus was riding in, some of the Pharisees who, who hated Jesus, they were already plotting to have him killed. So that they looked up over at him while he was riding on that donkey. And they said, teacher, 
tell these people to be quiet. And Jesus looked at him and he said, if I do, even the rocks will cry out. And Jesus goes into town. The expectations were powerful. They were powerful. People were expecting certain things. And I think it's important to look at these because God's going to turn some worlds upside down and meet people in a really unexpected way. These expectations kind of come in a couple of categories as I look at this. They come that the people were expecting a conquering hero. That's what they were hoping for. They were under Roman rule. They were being occupied by Caesar and by Caesar's army. They were no longer the powerhouse that they once were. They were held captive. And the plan was the Messiah that was foretold about in the book of Zechariah, the one that the scripture that Jesus fulfilled as he arrived into town, that that Messiah would come in and he would reestablish Israel as a political powerhouse. He would come in with might and with power, and he would overthrow the Romans, and he would establish the house of David again on the throne. And that that person would rule like David, being from David's line. And once again, we would return to glory as Israel the nation. And they were expecting a conquering hero. The problem was that conquering heroes came in on horses and chariots. They came in with thunder and power and an awe-inspiring presence. And here comes Jesus riding into town on the back of a baby donkey. Certainly not what everyone expected. But nonetheless, maybe this still was this conquering hero. Of course, Jesus comes in to conquer something other than the Romans. Jesus comes in to conquer death. But the expectation was, this is the king I want, a conquering hero. The second expectation that's really kind of wrapped up in there is they wanted a political king. They wanted someone to come in and and reestablish their political life because they were a bit of an afterthought among all the other nations. I mean, they were no longer the great prominent Israel. They were just another occupied kind of group or territory by the Romans. And they wanted a political king. And this is sort of that picture of, of royal homage that gets paid as Jesus comes riding up that road towards Jerusalem. People begin to take off their coats and their cloaks and they laid them on the ground. They ran to the nearest trees and they cut down branches and they laid them on, those, on that ground as an act of homage as Jesus and his little parade come riding by. And they begin to shout out Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna really just means save now. They're saying save now. We want you to come and reestablish us. We once again will be the nation that we once were. They wanted a king that would come in with power and with thunder and with awe-inspiring presence and reestablish their political movement as a nation. They expected their needs to be met. That was the frenzy. This is who we think we should be and what we're expecting. And so they met Jesus that day on that road with all those people and all through those towns or all through that town with the expectation of this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to to become a political powerhouse and reestablish us as a nation. He's come to meet my needs. And what is my greatest need as a people right now? It's an identity. So Jesus, meet my needs. Set us up again as the nation that we once Now, expectations are really interesting, and they're really powerful, and we all have expectations. We have expectations as we gather here. We all have expectations out of of our relationship with Christ. And there was no doubt that the people thought Jesus was the Messiah, and they thought he was the king, and there's no doubt that Jesus even accepted those titles. The question really is, what kind of Messiah and what kind of king were they expecting? We come with our expectations here all the time. We walked into them this morning. 
Sometimes they're really superficial, and sometimes they're really deep. We all expect things out of our relationship with Christ. It's echoed through our prayer. We expect God to do things on our timetable, in our way, how we want them. We want God to meet our needs. We put out there what we think is best for our life, and we say, God, do this. It's echoed in our prayer. Give me this job. Give me this girlfriend. Let me do this. Let me do that. God, do this. Meet my needs in my way, which is exactly what the people of Israel were crying out for. God, meet our needs in my way. The problem is, God, the God of the universe shows up in really unexpected ways. The God of the universe never says that he's out there to meet our expectations. And he does something really powerful in the life of Israel. He demonstrates to them how small their expectations really were. Now look at what happens with these expectations. That first day as Jesus comes riding in the town and people are shouting and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the name. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're laying down coats and palm branches and all these things and people are fevered. In four short days that crowd turns. When they begin to realize that this Jesus isn't who they thought he was. That he wasn't coming in to meet their expectations in their ways, in the way they wanted and establish the kingdom the way they wanted to establish. What happens? That same crowd will rally with swords and lanterns to go have Jesus arrested. That same crowd will take Jesus, literally under arrest, to the Roman guard. That same crowd will call for Barabbas to be pardoned, a murderer, and Jesus to be crucified. That same crowd will walk by as the body of Christ hangs on the cross and they will spit and hurl insults. The same crowd that said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That same crowd that laid down cloaks and palm branches. That same crowd that said, we are so glad you're here, will be the same crowd that cries out for his crucifixion. Four days. When our expectations aren't met, when we go before the Lord and we say, God, I expect you to do things for me. I want to live in comfort. I want to live this way. I want to live in, the, in my kind of control picture of my life. And this is how I see it. And when, when our expectations aren't met in our way, the first thing we do is begin to walk away. Because we want God to operate on our timetable and our lives in the way that we want them. And we pray specific things and we ask for specific things and almost always they're geared towards me. But the God of the universe shows up in really radical ways and demonstrates how small our expectations are. I mean, what the Israelites wanted was a conquering hero. What Jesus came in and did was conquer death for all of mankind. They wanted to establish a political kingdom, and what Jesus came in and did was establish the kingdom of God so that you and I might have a redeemed relationship with a God who created everything. You see how small expectations are. The things that I expect out of God are so small. They're trivial. They're prideful and they're selfish. And what God has in store for me is beyond my biggest and greatest expectation. But I'll tell you this. It's a fearful thing to say, God, I want what you want, not what I want. Most of us aren't geared that way. It's a fearful thing to say, I want to live in a radical, world-changing way. I'll do whatever it is you lead me and go wherever it is you want me to go. I'll speak to whoever you call me to speak to. God, I will risk for you. Because I want what you want, not what I want. Those are world-changing statements. And most of us won't make them. We're petrified. But if this week shows us anything, it shows us that God operates in a scale that's beyond our comprehension. Think about that last tie that Luke has in his account. When the Pharisees, who hated Jesus, said, tell all these people to be quiet. And Jesus' only response to them was, if I tell them to be quiet... If I tell them to be quiet, the very rocks will cry out. This is a God that operates on a magnificent scale. 
This is a God who will use the very creation that he created, the very rocks that he formed with his hands to cry out for his glory. This is the God that blows all of our expectations out of the water. So what do you expect from your relationship with Christ? Do you expect a God that will do things in a dramatic, magnificent, amazing way, move beyond all of your small expectations, calling you to a life that only God can provide? A life that changes the world, moves things upside down, turns your faith from this size into something massive where I can say, God, I truly trust you. Or do we just simply expect to exist? Draw one breath after the other and just say, you know what? I'm not doing so bad. I'll tell you this. I truly believe that you were created to do more than draw breath. That you were created to do more than fill space. That the God that made all this, the God that can use the very rocks to cry out, wants to use you in a way that will turn everything upside down. Wants to show you just how big he is. The question is, are you willing to live in those unexpected moments? You see, this week marks the very familiar. It marks another week where on Sunday, as we get ready for church, we'll get all dressed up and we'll get some friends together. And we may do that or we may go visit family for lunch. And it is what it is and it's great and we appreciate it. But for most of us, it won't change us. It'll just mark another great day that we go to church. But as I was praying on Thursday, really for this whole kind of week, I was just at a place where I said, God, I want to be changed by you. Like, I want to be changed. I don't want to just do this. I want to be so changed in a way that you take all my expectations. You say, Trib, your ideas of what I want to do and can do in your life are so small. Will you just trust me. Will you just trust me? I want to live in that place. So what does this week mark for you? Another series in a very familiar line of events where you get to come face to face with some really neat part of our religious tradition. Or is it a reminder of of the great upheaval of God? That the God of the universe broke into creation, walked this earth, turned all the expectations of the world upside down to redeem you, to give you new life. I mean, that's what this picture is. It's not just that God is big. It's that God took you and me who are deeply, deeply ingrained in our sinful life and said, I love you so much that I will send my son Jesus to die for all of that garbage so that not only you can have the promise of eternal life, but so that you can have real, abundant, eternal life that begins today. Not when you die, right in this moment. Because you were created to do more than draw breath. You were created to to live in an an abundant, rich, amazing way. And most of us have become okay with just existing. Restless. Challenge this week is to step inside of this truth and say, God, I want you to move in unexpected ways. I want you to show me how small my expectations are for you and I want to risk. I want to be part of that group that says, God, I don't want what I want. I want what you want, and I'll do whatever it takes to follow you. Because if we follow Christ this week, it leads us to the cross, which leads us to the resurrection, which changes everything in human history, in our very lives. As you think about this week, and as you go about it, and you read these familiar stories, and you see all the Easter stuff around, I challenge you to say, God, how small are my expectations? Have I truly given you my heart? Am I really ready to risk? I want you to move in a way that will forever change me. This is a God that moves beyond our expectations and does show up in power and thunder and awe-inspiring presence. This is a great week.
Let's pray together.